Welcome to Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Anthony Harkins, professor of history at Western Kentucky University, and Meredith McCarroll, director of writing and rhetoric at Bowdoin College. We're discussing their co-edited book, Appalachian Reckoning, A Region Response to Hillbilly Elegy, published by West Virginia University Press. Tony Harkins and Meredith McCarroll, welcome to Working History. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. The title of your book is Appalachian Reckoning. Uh, Why did you choose Reckoning for the title? It was tough trying to figure out what to call this book, and there was lots of back and forth, and um, I guess we reckoned with the title a lot. I really uh, like the, the term Reckoning because of the dual meanings of that word mm-hmm. and the way that that word is situated in Appalachian and Southern culture. So mm-hmm. to me, a reckoning is sort of a, a way to, to make things right. Um, but also to reckon with something is to think about it in a deep way. And I think this book is trying to do both of those things. I think that's exactly right. We, we liked the duality of it and the, uh, the notion that it was both, uh, you know, framing itself as a response to mm-hmm. uh, largely critical or, or 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 concerned response to hillbilly elegy, but also that it was a broader kind of uh, struggle over the identity and the meaning and the place of Appalachia in today's uh, society. Mm-hmm. And let's let's continue a little bit with that. Uh, for better or worse, uh, J.D. Vance's memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, Elegy, prompted a surge of interest in and conversations about this region that's broadly known as Appalachia. I mean, in and of itself, it's very diverse, but this kind of big thing in people's imagination. What prompted you to publish the book in response, what made you feel like it needed formal published response, number one? And then where do you, uh, number two, see this book fitting into the broader recent conversations about the region? Well, the book, uh, I really must credit West Virginia Press because they came to uh, both of us Mm -hmm. as far as putting a book together. um, And uh, it grew out of a panel on uh, on reactions to hillbilly elegy at the Appalachian Studies Association conference a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and many of the most of the uh, panelists were, are in the book as contributors, um, and it was clear that there was a general there was a big reaction to hillbilly elegy, but there was also you know on the on the national stage, but there was also growing concern about it and how it was once again framing Appalachia in very narrow terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of framing uh, or positioning, intentionally or not, positioning itself as the kind of single story of Appalachia. And I, we, we both thought it was very important to have multiple voices uh, responding to that to emphasize its diversity, to emphasize the concerns people had with hillbillyology. But we also have contributors who, who defend aspects of the book and think it was an important, uh, an important uh, conversation starter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to to speak, especially with you know your potentially broader group of listeners. Um, I, I have forgotten sometimes that not everyone in the country understands why hillbilly elegy or that hillbilly elegy caused such a splash, especially in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. There really was um, that was that was a really intense several months leading up to the presidential election of 2016, and then following the presidential 
presidential election, there was a lot of attention on Appalachia, probably maybe simplifying uh, ways that that people were trying to think about the the election and trying to understand the way that voters were were thinking about that election. Mm-hmm. And Appalachia, as you said, is this very complex 13-state region, but it, it kind of was seen as, as a single voting block. Mm-hmm. And so leading up to the election and following the election, there was a lot of attention um, paid to Appalachia, and some of it was not really very complex. And so... Um, I think that Hillbilly Elegy stepped in and answered questions that a lot of people had around that time leading up to, but especially after the election, trying to understand um, where those votes were coming from. And uh, the answer that that Hillbilly Elegy gave felt too simplistic for, for most people in the area. And so that was one thing, but I think it's important too to frame that the the way that readers responded to Hillbilly Elegy was maybe more what people in Appalachia were, were reacting to um, even more than than the book itself. I, I think that a lot of people um, looked at Hillbilly Elegy and saw that as as a way to understand Appalachia and therefore, you know, kind of had their simple answer and felt like they understood Appalachia and were, were looking no further. And the answer that he gives is, is one that allows people to kind of turn away from Appalachia. So I think that that look zooming in and really thinking about what uh, why this why this book was so um, divisive and why so many people within Appalachia especially reacted to it is is part of understanding the reasons that it made a lot of sense for us to have a collection of responses to Hillbilly Elegy. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners who may not have read Hillbilly Elegy, could one or both of you just sort of give us a real quick kind of broad brush strokes what the main thrust of the argument is that's made in that book? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try. I mean, it's a memoir, I mean, it's, right? It's, but it's, it's a memoir. Yeah, so. But it's called a memoir of a, of a family and culture in crisis. Mm-hmm. So the way that it sort of conflates family and culture is, is you know, as much of the problem. Mm-hmm. The memoir is quite gripping and you know it's a story of of jd vance uh, growing up and uh, overcoming many uh obstacles in his childhood his uh, addicted mother and her multiple boyfriends and and stepfathers and um and the kind of instability and insecurity that he has in his life and that he gains from his uh, spending time with his grandmother and grandfather um and visiting them in their in, in during the summers in their house in Jackson, Kentucky. Although he grows up in Middletown, Ohio, and sort of the classic Rust Belt area, mm-hmm. um, and then ultimately, of course, becoming a great success and uh, going to college, joining the Marines, going to Yale Law School, becoming a, a wealthy lawyer um, and pundit, and uh, you know, and now a sort of political uh, political figure as well as a Someone who, uh, at least until recently, I'm not sure he's he's still fully on the board on this, but moved back to Ohio and is is promoting venture capital interests, uh, funding of projects in in the interior of the country and mm-hmm. not just coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I uh, one of our contributors, uh, Bob Hutton, speaks of it as a sort of modern Horatio Alger story, which mm-hmm. it, it very much is. It's very much of a 
sort of uh, luck and pluck raising you to great heights and you know and the american dream personified and he uses that term many many times um that's not the problem with the book obviously he has every right to tell his own story and it's a it's a gripping story and it obviously has affected a lot of people I think the problem is that, A, he presents it as sort of the only story. Mm-hmm. Um, he um, does not, at, you know, he does not position it within any sort of historical or socioeconomic um, reality. Um, and he has a sort of neoliberal, I guess, uh, perspective that uh, people in the region uh, are sort of their own worst enemies and uh reinforces a lot of older stereotypes about Appalachians being lazy and ignorant and backwards and unwilling to sort of improve their, improve themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that he presents it as a family and a culture in crisis makes it seem like that's, that's the sole story of Appalachia, that it's a white male working class experience fairly solely um, and does not consider, does not consider the diversity of gender, race, um, class, um, gender identity, all the other aspects of, of the diversity of the region. And he, I think it's important too, that he, it's not just that his story doesn't reflect that diversity. It's the way that he writes in first person plural about Mm. Appalachia. He Mm. uses we a lot and he says things like we created these problems, we can get ourselves out of it. And and so it is um, not only is speaking on behalf of the region that most people would be weary of, but it's also, uh, like Tony said, he's relying on these these stereotypes that have been established for a very long time that are used to um, continue to ignore um, to ignore the region, but also to justify the destruction of the region. So it's, it's a lot of powerful work that is happening there. And it's, uh, it's very carefully disguised, I think, as a memoir, when in fact it is, um, it's, it's claiming actually a lot more than the ability to just tell one's own story. Mm-hmm. And your book really, in a lot of ways, complicates this whole story. It, it, you know, makes us think about all the ways in which the region is really quite diverse. And the, uh, the content of your book is, is quite expansive in terms of content and scope. And you engage with issues of class and race and identity and politics and economics and all of these things in, in Appalachia. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk more intimately about, about the work that, that you co-edited. And let's start by talking sort of about the process a, a little bit, who are your contributors? Um, you had already mentioned that, you know, these were folks that uh, some of whom participated on uh, a panel interrogating um, hillbilly elegy. Who are your contributors and what was your process for deciding what shape the book would take kind of beyond this panel that, that you mentioned? So Tony and I come from different um, backgrounds. My mm-hmm. background is in literary and cinema studies and Tony's a historian. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, there are there are ways that we were able to both draw on our strengths and our backgrounds as we came together to collect the the, the pieces that ended up in the book. So my primary focus, my my instinct um, with the reaction to Hillbilly Elegy was to collect as many different perspectives on the region as possible. 
because I think that the mere presence of different voices, different experiences complicates, um, necessarily complicates a monolithic image of the area. So I was in a really exciting position to reach out to some of the writers that I most admired and ask them, you know, would they be interested in telling their stories about Appalachia? What does Appalachian identity mean to them? And uh, luckily, lots of them responded positively and mm-hmm. said that they would participate. And then beyond that, I put a call out to to make sure that we were hearing as many diverse stories as possible. Because part of the book, as you mentioned, it's, it is um, expansive in content and scope. Um, so the, you know, we have we have personal narratives and poetry and photography in addition to scholarly to scholarship. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that responds directly to hillbilly elegy and some of it moves beyond that. But part of it was, was really tapping into this already active community of writers thinking about Appalachia. What we were able to do was not necessarily to, we weren't starting anything new. We're just tapping into and accessing this really vibrant community of scholars and writers in Appalachia. Absolutely. And, um, and I think, you know, the panel was the sort of starting point for the direct response to hillbilly elegy part. But um, I also, uh, you know, just sort of looked online and saw what people were writing about hillbilly elegy. And there's, there's quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and some of the panelists, um, myself, I'm not from Appalachia, but I've been studying the region for a long time. Um, Lisa Pruitt, is a law professor at UC Davis, um, and is not from Appalachia, but grew up in in Arkansas, and uh, saw a lot of parallels in terms of the experience and the and the use of the of the identification of the region for broader political purposes. Um, and so we found, um, and we were we were quite uh, hopeful that we could have, and I think we have succeeded in having both academics and non-academics as part of the, as part of the contributors. So we have, uh, people who are community activists or just uh, active in the, in the, in the region in various ways, artists and creative types, and then also, you know, traditional academics in sociology and history and, and, uh, and law. Um, and so that mix of that mix of voices what is really what we we wanted to emphasize more than anything was not to have a single sort of response to JD Vance, but to, to but to recognize how much more complex and diverse the reactions uh, and the responses uh, in the region are. Mm-hmm. And could you discuss um, maybe just two or three more specific examples of selections in that are included in the book to give us a sense of of some of this content and how it does, in fact, give us this broader analysis and understanding from a variety of perspectives? The book's kind of divided into three parts, which we call interrogating and responding to hillbilly elegy, two parts, and then the third part is beyond hillbilly mm-hmm. elegy. So I can speak more to the the first part. Okay. Um, one of the um, one of our contributors speaks about the the political uses of of Appalachia and and of hillbilly elegy. Uh, this is Dwight Billings, mm-hmm. uh, who was a sociologist at University of Kentucky, and he uh, uses the term Trumpalachia to sort of talk about how the region gets framed as a as a single voting block, mm-hmm. um, and that you know the 13 state region, and yet 
you know, they're all kind of voting as one um, and uh, we're all in for Trump. And he tries to stress the the ways that distorts the potential political diversity of the region that Bernie Sanders, for instance, outpolled, uh, significantly outpolled Hillary Clinton in the primaries. Hmm. Um, and, you know, Appalachia has a long tradition of progressive politics mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and resistance to uh, exploitive industries and exploitive political processes. And so, so he, um, so he looks at it sort of through the political lens. And then we have personal scholars who are speaking to their own personal narratives as well. So one is William Turner, who was, uh, African American, grew up in, uh, in Lynch, Kentucky, um, in Eastern, Far Eastern Kentucky, and, and went to, uh, you know, a colored school at the time. Um, but he mostly traces the incredible achievements of his classmates um, around the country who have reached great heights in business and politics and other things to sort of, A, point out the ways that hillbilly elegy erases the African-American experience in Appalachia utterly, mm-hmm. and B, that uh, perhaps there's something in their achievements that they, uh, you know, learned through uh, an exploitive, uh, segregated society to to overcome great difficulties, um, and in some ways have been, at least from his examples, been more successful at it than than certain, uh, you know, non minorities have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to sort of say that not everybody is, you know, sort of trapped in in the bottom, but there is possibilities of of transcendence. Mm-hmm. That sort of suggests the kind of ways that personal lives and scholarship get blended together in a number of these narratives mm-hmm. um, that are looking more directly at hillbillyology and responding to it. And then Meredith can speak to, to other aspects of the book. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's it's hard to, and Tony, I'm sure it was hard for you as well, looking at the first part of the book, but it's hard to pick out particular pieces to highlight. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Read the because, whole book. It's actually great. Okay, okay, <laughs> great. Everybody settle in. Yeah. Uh, so I think that what's exciting to me is what makes it difficult to, to point to particular pieces is that we just have such a diverse collection of voices and perspectives mm-hmm. and forms. Some of the pieces that uh, exist in the Beyond Hillbilly Elegy we have poets like Jesse Graves and Robert Morgan, who are well-established poets writing in and about Appalachia. And the works that they share are, are simply their, their reflections of, you know, of, of being in Appalachia and working in Appalachia and living in Appalachia. Um, we have a piece from, let's see, Jeremy Jones has a, has a really funny piece um, called Notes on a Mountain Man, where he's talking in part about uh, being called a mountain man when he left the region and trying to figure out what that means. What does it mean to be a mountain man? And he ties it to um, Ernest T. Bass from the Andy Griffith show. And and it's, it's a funny piece and it's a weird piece, but it also kind of taps into something that is a recurring theme throughout the book, which is really trying to understand what what does it mean to be Appalachian today? Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that Robert Geip, the novelist, uh, deals with in his piece, which is called How Appalachian I Am, where he's really reflecting on, you know, growing up in these ways that made him Appalachian and, and then still kind of pushing against, well, what, is it, what does it really mean to be Appalachian? 
the piece that I have in the collection deals with my accent and the way that leaving the region made me hyper aware of my accent and everything my accent signaled. And, and I think that that comes up also for Kirsten Squint and some other people in the book. Another contributor that is kind of tapping into these same questions is Keith Wilson. He has a series of poems uh, called Holler that are really wrestling with his identity, both as a biracial man and someone who has lived in and out of Appalachia and trying to understand how to identify himself with a hyper awareness of how other people have identified him. So those are just a couple of the highlights um, Mm -hmm. from the back half of the book. Yeah. And I, I would just quickly add the photography, mm-hmm. um, which was a which was a sort of late decision on our part um, to include. But I'm so glad we did, because I think it really complements the other writings. It gives us um, and part of the goal of the of these photographers, uh, both of the um, looking at Appalachia series that uh, Roger May um, uh, has curated and, and brought us brought to us and a number of other photographs was to counter the typical photographs of Appalachia, which you see, you know, almost omnipresently of, of black and white usually mm-hmm. and children who are dirty and, and barefoot and in difficult situations. And these photographs are much more about the, you know, the lived experience of, of most Appalachians and they reflect the, uh, the joys and the, and the celebrations of life as well as, as well as some of the difficulties. I think that was a really important contribution because so often Appalachia gets defined in such narrow and, and almost always negative and critical ways that it erases the people's actual lived experience and they become almost kind of iconic and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And and this was an attempt to show the, the vitality and the diversity of the area as well. So when people put down your book after reading it in, in, whole, in total, how do you think they would describe Appalachia to you? How would your hyper, hypothetical reader define this region? Or how do you want them to? I mean, maybe they're two separate questions. What do you think people are taking away? And what was sort of your driving force in terms of what kind of message you wanted to get out? I hope that they don't have a, a quick answer. Uh-huh. <laughs> We've been asked at some readings, to, to talk about what Appalachia is. Mm-hmm. And the people who, who spend their time really thinking deeply and studying Appalachia have a hard time answering that um, because it's a complex place. Mm-hmm. And it is a, it's a diverse, large place made up of urban and rural, you know, I mean, there's, it, it's hard to, to simplify it. Recently, mm-hmm. I was on a panel with uh, the writer Silas House and someone asked him, what is Appalachia? And, and I'll borrow his answer here. He said, Appalachia is America. And Hmm. I thought that's a, that's a, we were both on that panel, Tony. And I think that that, that is a really important way to, to frame this. Appalachia has every um, part of it that, that the rest of America has. And it's difficult to, to uh, sum up and say what America is. And similarly, it's difficult to sum up and say what, what Appalachia is. I do hope, though, that some readers, and and I guess this is more to your question of what do what do we see happening from some readers. I think that some readers are are surprised and are being forced to 
to check some of their presumptions that they may have been making about the region and that that they're maybe a little bit unsettled in a in a productive way when they finish reading the book. I hope too that there is a sense of deep pride and kind of a fierceness that I associate with Appalachia. Those are mm-hmm. those are some of the characteristics that that I see in my own experience growing up in the region and that I, I see showing up throughout the the pieces that we have here and really that is ca- uh, that is captured by a book that is speaking back so forcefully to complicate one person's perspective that that fierceness and that pride. Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, I, I, I liked what Meredith said about, I hope they don't have a single answer mm-hmm. because there is no single answer. And as, as I always tell my students, you know, if I've, if I've made things more complicated for you, then I've done my job, you know, the world's mm-hmm. a complicated place and we need to, to embrace that complexity and not sort of see it as a problem that's needing to be solved. But I do hope that it, that it gives readers, particularly ones who are not familiar with the region, a better sense of its, of its complexity, of its diversity, of the range of reactions of the absolutely the sense of pride of place and of family and community and how strongly those are held i think reading some of these poems and and pieces uh, you really recognize the ways that people are really tied to and defined by their their place and and see that as a as a strength not as a not as something that has to be overcome and you know, that they have to they have to keep moving all the time to to advance themselves. And also a place where it's not simply coal mining all the time, which I think is often the way it gets presented and mm-hmm. uh, the way the, the, the president has framed it in some ways. Um, there's relatively little in here about coal mining, although some families, you know, some contributors have coal miners in their families. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it's a more complicated place than that. It's a and and, uh, and it's you know and it's a it's a place that exists in the 21st century, not in the in the ancient past. It often gets framed that way as well as a kind of place that the time and and uh, it's a time is left behind. Uh, sort of how the uh, hillbilly cover was mm-hmm. of a sort of abandoned farmhouse on a dirt road. And uh, sure, you can find places like that in Appalachia, as you can in most places, certainly mm-hmm. all around me in Kentucky. Uh, but it's also a place of vitality and energy and, and, and modernity. And we wanted to make sure that was clear as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think this sense of the region being a place that's forever stuck in a past, whatever that past is, is one of the things that makes it have such a powerful hold on the popular imagination. I'm always curious about that. Like, why are people, you know, why do people think about Appalachia in the way they do? And why does it have this very particular resonance with people? Do you have any thoughts on that? We have so yeah, many well, thoughts on yes, that. Yes, please yeah. share. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I speaking less from this book than from uh, my work on uh, on the image of the hillbilly mm-hmm. uh, in my book, Hillbilly, um, it absolutely has always been a space of both romanticization, pity, and exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those things go hand in hand. So on the one hand, it's seen as this place that the time is forgotten, where people are still living like their pioneer ancestors, where you know the traditional 
so-called traditional American values of family and home and faith are, are strongly held. Um, and, and, you know, to an extent beyond that, uh, guns. <laughs> and uh, that all of this stuff is sort of also a space of intense individualism. Um, and um, an unwillingness to, uh, you know, transform oneself for the for fads or for broader institutional pressures. Um, and so those things are the positive aspects. That, but then, on the other hand, all of those things have negative overtones as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, strong family and faith also might mean dysfunctional families and, and problematic aspects. Uh, you know, a, a sense of individualism can also be a sort of uh, stubborn ignorance and unwillingness to accommodate modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, closeness to the land may, may seem to be uh, negatively and critically isolationist to the point where, you know, you sort of refuse to to modernize and, and improve your lives. And so all of those aspects, I think, go hand in hand. And part of what that allows for is, a, is, a, is an area where people can either think of it safely in the past or just as a place that doesn't matter, where people aren't going to help themselves. And so why should we worry about them? And uh, why should we pay much attention to what's happening in the region? Um, and I think that's part of how you can explain, you know, the, the scope of mountaintop removal without mm-hmm. much public reaction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of devastating exploitation of the land and the people. Uh, which continues today, and which uh, you know has gotten just almost no attention mm-hmm. on the national stage, uh, which which to me is rather shocking. Um, so I think it's that I think it's that mix of romanticization and uh, negativity which which explains that ongoing fascination, but also that comes and goes. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's moments of fascination, and then it just fades utterly from the consciousness. Meredith, did you have anything to add? That was a pretty clear answer there. <laughs> I kept thinking of things and then you said them. I, no, I would, I would agree that I think it is that duality that has that has functioned for a long time. It's interesting thinking about the reasons that people romanticize frontier spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think it's tied to, you know, the beginnings of, of America, of the imaginings of America and what America can be. Um and then the reality of living in frontier spaces or living in rural spaces, mm-hmm. for most people, that is not the choice that that is going to be that they're going to make today in 2019. And so I think that there is a way that we like to romanticize the past and need to believe that there is still a place that represents that. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's that's part of what Appalachia has done. I. I, my other work is on um, film, and so I'm looking specifically at the ways that Appalachia is represented in films, and it's very much what Tony's saying around, like the, you know, his work with the hillbilly figure. There's a way that that we that we see a place as quaint and lovely, but taken to an extreme. As he as he talked through all of these. Um, kind of stereotypes that could be truths are they they can be taken to an extreme and turned into a negative aspect that leaves us that leaves people thinking about Appalachians as backward and somehow wrong because they're not they're not moving forward as as the rest of the country evolves and and yeah that's really it's been a really powerful force to justify the destruction of places 
it hasn't changed. It's it's not gone away. Tony has talked before about when he was writing um, Hillbilly that he thought that this would be that 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 type would would not be relevant anymore. And it is still a really powerful image, and it's still a really powerful narrative that is used to justify an erasure of a place. It's you know, and, and a and a real disrespect of people living in in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap up, any uh, projects that you both are currently working on that you want to give a quick plug for? Meredith, we're still just really in in Appalachian reckoning. We're, okay. we're getting started with uh, with you know, we've been lucky to do a lot of different readings and hope to continue doing those. I have a couple of, of little possibilities, but there's mm-hmm. just it's such an infant stage. I mean, yeah. I have been thinking about the power of personal narrative that that really struck me through this collection. And so many people that wrote personal narratives for this piece that tend to write other kinds of work. And so I am digging into some some writing of my own, reflecting on my family and, and place. So that's it's at such an early stage. Yeah, I, I agree. We are very much in the, in the midst of it. Um, one of the things about this book is it came together very quickly, uh-huh. and the press did a wonderful job of getting it out in a, in a really prompt way. And so we haven't been all that long since the editing process. Right, so, right, yeah. yeah. So, and that's a huge uh, amount of work. I just it, finished it an edited volume myself, and I know it's like it's, it's an incredible amount of work. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, – and but the uh, the the wonderful thing about the book and our and our talking to various people about it is we are you know making connections mm-hmm. uh, with all sorts of folks um, outside of our disciplines and um, and I think there's a lot of uh, rich potential to come. All right, great. Well, congratulations on the volume. It's it's really wonderful. And thanks again for joining us on this episode of Working History. Thanks for Thank having us. Thank you so us. much. Delightful. Thanks again to Anthony Harkins and Meredith McCarroll for joining us today to discuss their book, Appalachian Reckoning. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. 